0: 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through, let's do 1 through 4 right now. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Wow. So if you came here for a lighthearted, fun, fluffy message today... (laughs) The second Thessalonians is is divided into three different chapters, as you know, three different parts. Basically, you can remember it by three C's. Uh, The first chapter, he's comforting the church. He's comforting them. They are getting ripped apart for following Jesus Christ. The culture around them is radically not saved. They are radically anti-Christ. They are against Jesus Christ. And they are longing to pull them back into uh, the false worship. They're longing to pull them away from their newfound devotion and their love to Jesus. And when they say no, and when they continue to follow Jesus, the persecution comes about. And so this beautiful young church is getting hit with a lot of spiritual warfare And so Paul, as an apostle, as a good shepherd, comes in and starts telling them, this is okay. Do you know that the reason why these things are happening is because God chose you, because he righteously chose you and you accepted him. And and this is the the product of that, persecution. Just as they rejected Jesus, they're going to reject you. And God's second coming, when Jesus comes, he will eviscerate them And we'll take that weight, that persecution that's put upon on you, and we'll put it back upon them. And so he comforts them with those things, saying that you might not find relief right here, right now. You might continue to be hated. You might be, continue to have your homes taken from you and your kids taken from you or whatever it might be. But press on. You're not living for here and now only. Jesus is returning. He will set all things right, and on that day... It's going to all work out. And so he, he, that's how we leave chapter 1. So there's the comfort of chapter 1. Chapter 3 is another C. He's going to do some correction. There's some lazy people in the church, busy bodies. And so he's going to talk about that. But chapter 2 is another C, and he's going to deal with some confusion. Confusion re- regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ, re- regarding their, re- their being gathered up to, the, to him and his return. And I don't know about you, but the church is still confused about this. I mean, I still am struggling back and forth about this because some things seem so clear. You read one passage and it's just like, oh, that's it. And then you read another passage and you're like, wait a second. Jesus, are you coming before or are you coming after this tribulation period? If you don't know what I'm talking about, give me a second. We'll we'll get there. And you read these things. So great people who love the Lord see it different ways, and that's okay. I, from my background, like I said, I I, will, I I teach from a pre-tribulation perspective, and that's what I'll pretty much be doing today. And so, just know that there are people in the body who disagree with this, people who I admire and respect. Uh, but this is where we are. And so, what I find amazing is that there's probably three months. Scholars say between this first letter and uh, yeah, the first letter and the third and the second letter here, it's around three months. And if we remember, flip back left to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5. He ends chapter 5, basically, or, or the first part of chapter 5, talking him about the day of the Lord. We're going to talk about what that means in just a minute. I'm going to read it to you. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. Well, yes, you do, Paul. Thank you. you know, <laughs> help us. But no, we don't need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. Will come upon them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. He says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that that they should surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light and are children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and be sober. For those who are asleep, sleep at night, those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith, love as a a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Salvation from what? From the wrath of God. The hope of salvation for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died so that whether we are awake, in other words, we're walking around here on the earth, or asleep, dead, and with him, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build, it, build each other up in these words. So here we are three months before, probably. He's talking to the church. He's saying, you know very well that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief of a thief in the night. For people who are walking in darkness, you're not of the darkness. You're of the light. That day is a day of destruction, and it is coming upon people who do not walk in the light, who are not saved. And that's what I believe that that is saying. Now, people could say that you're just not going to be surprised by that day. Therefore, be sober. You see what I'm saying? Two different ways of looking at it but this is kind of how I look at it, that that day is not going to surprise you because you're not going to be there. It's not going to overtake you. You're not appointed to wrath, this judgment day, and we're going to talk about what that day is in Scripture. That's not, that's not for you. Three months go by, and all of a sudden, what happened? As we read here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, some people came in, and they, were, they shook up the church, they alarmed them, they unsettled them, they unrooted them, they wavered them in this elementary teaching that Paul had talked to them, about them, either by prophecy, someone, you know, there were traveling prophets, uh, there was a prophecy, someone came in and said, hey, the day of the Lord is now. And you can imagine this little church, they're getting hammered. They're getting hammered and they're thinking, oh great, we got through into the tribulation, you know, Wonderful. And you ever feel like that? (laughs) Or by word of mouth, or by letter. Someone had counterfeited a letter from Paul, and that's why Paul says, I write in my own hands, see what large letters I write, because people were counterfeiting what he had written and were saying that it was from him, and that was the authority, and they listened to Paul. And so false teachers were jumping in there trying to get this little church their hope off of the salvation of the Lord and thinking that they were under the wrath of God. And he has to come back in several times and explain to them what? Hey, God's got you. And he's going to explain some more theology to them, a little more timeline to them. Because don't be easily unsettled or alarmed. Don't be messed up in your mind or rooted from, moved from your position in Christ that this teaching came from me. It didn't. As if the day of the Lord had already come. Now, what in the world is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord. We get this teaching, the foundational teaching. Jesus talked about it a lot. John talked. There's just, it's all over the New Testament. But the foundational teaching can be in Daniel chapter 9. So flip left in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. In honor of Daniel's birthday. No, it was Daniel's birthday. It was last week, sorry. Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. i actually start in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sins, the sin of my people, Israel, and making a request to the Lord my God for, him, for his holy hill. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, this is the angel Gabriel, he came for me in swift flight at about the time of the evening sacrifice, and he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding, and as soon as, I be- as you began to pray, the word went out, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Daniel has been in captivity the children of Israel rebelled against God. They're in captivity in Babylon, in Iraq, for 70 years. 70 years. The reason why they were in captivity is because they had not let the, the land rest every seven years. How many of you farmers have that principle of let the land rest every few years, you know, so it doesn't deplete? Well, guess where it came from? God's great idea. They did not do that. And so for every year, every Sabbath year that they didn't do that, so every seventh year that they didn't do that, God put them in captivity for one whole year. So how many years were they neglecting that? 70. 70 times 7 is 490 years. Math people. Correct? So for 490 years, they had been ignoring what God had commanded them to do. And so God says, because you have done this, I'm going to put you in captivity and let you out of the land, take you out of the land, let the land rest for that amount of time. And they did for 70. And so Daniel, at the end of this time, pondering upon the prophecy of Jeremiah, how many everybody knows Jeremiah 29, 11? What is it? For you know the plans I have for you, Right? We love that verse. Well, verse 10 is the important one. It's, in point, it's appointed you 70 years in Babylon. And after your 70 years, paraphrasing Jeremiah, I will take you out of the land and bring you back for I know the plans I have for you. Right? And that's the rest of the story. So that is not necessarily for you. It is for them. But yes, I'd like to claim that verse. Amen? <laughs> but he's talking to them, Right? He's talking to them and saying, I'm going to bring you out of the land. Daniel's sitting there knowing, reading his Bible, understanding the times and saying, we're about at the end of 70. He starts interceding, praying, and then God answers him and says, yes. And now I'm going to give you a vision about what the, the future of Israel and Jerusalem is. And he starts speaking there in verse 24. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. To finish transgressions, and he lays out several things here, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up visions and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. This is speaking to the nation and the people of Israel. Is this talking about the church? No, it's not. It's talking to the nation of Israel. And he goes, know and understand this, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, the anointed one, uh, until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. How many of you like reading four score and seven years ago? What are you talking about? That's what we're talking about. How long is it going to be? It's going to be 69 weeks, 69 weeks. What do you mean? 69 groups of seven, 483 years. Until the Messiah comes, the anointed one. He laid it out in advance. And guess what happened? You need to know the the start date. When was the decree? Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah standing there and was bringing the wine before the king. And he was mourning and he was downcast, thinking about his homeland in captivity in Babylon. Correct? What happens? At the end of the 70-year period, the king says, why are you downcast? Why is your heart so sorrowful? And he goes, I want to go home. I want to rebuild Jerusalem. Let me go. And so the decree went out. There's probably four different examples, but this is the one here in Nehemiah. There's three others in Ezra, but this is the one where it says to go rebuild the wall and, and the temple, rebuild Jerusalem. And so from this point in April, of 583 B.C. or whatever it is, 483 years later, guess who cruises into Jerusalem on a donkey and starts to receive worship? Pretty wild stuff. And the amazing thing to me is they knew it. Like Daniel, they knew the times, they knew the seasons, they knew when he would come and what happened? They killed them anyways. They killed them anyways. How many of you know the right thing to do, but you just don't do it? It's boring. (coughs) Let it be forever recorded. (laughs) Yes, you're among friends. And then if you read verse 26, it says, After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. And so he lays out that this anointed one, the Messiah, is going to be cut off is the word in some of yours. So Jesus is cut off. Speaking about this time. Now, if you're like me, you're a math person, you go, okay, wait, that's 69 weeks. What happened to the 70th week? What's going on there? And this is what that week the Bible talks of. Jesus spoke of more called the time of Jacob's sorrow. Revelation lays it out for you. Daniel will go on to talk about it more. Matthew 24, we'll read if we have time. It's a time of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth and God dealing with the nation of Israel once again. And guess what? There's a big gap between when the Messiah was cut off in that 70th week, starting up again. And so this church is in this middle of this thing going, when's this Time of, when's the day of the Lord? The day, meaning that seven-year period. When is that happening that Revelation speaks of, where God's judgment is poured out the word, on the earth? When, when's that going to come? Are we in it now? So flip back to Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to go back to Daniel again just a bit. False teachers had crept in saying that they were in that last seven-year period. The Great Tribulation is what it's called. They bought it probably because they were suffering greatly and thinking they had done something wrong. But Paul had already told them, no, you're not in the dark. You're not appointed to wrath. This day isn't for you. Walk in the light. And Paul gives them a little bit further teaching. He says, verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in that way, for that day will not come until... Two things happen until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction, otherwise known as the Antichrist. Two things will set off that thing. One is that word for apostasy. The apostasy will happen. And what that word means, that means the, uh, the falling away or the rebellion, they can't get it. Some scholars have tried to say that that means it's the catching away, and I've even thought that at times, but that's really not what it means, I don't think. I think it basically means it's, there's going to be an apostasy, there's going to be a rebellion, there's going to be people who say they follow Christ, times are going to get difficult, and they're really not going to be following Christ. People are going to be falling away from the church like crazy. They're going to be leaving the Lord There'll be false teachers prevalent. There'll just be a a horrible time. And we can see that, that there is apostasy within the church now, but we're talking about a move where it is a distinct situation where there will be a great falling away. And that will also be coupled by the revealing of the man of sin, otherwise known as the Antichrist, John just calls him Antichrist in 1 John chapter 4. He doesn't even refer to him as the Antichrist. Actually, he's never called the Antichrist in Scripture, but we kind of latched on to that one, and that's what we call him. He's called the man of sin, son of perdition, son of Satan, all these types of things in Scripture, 33 different uh, labels in the Old Testament, 13 in the New. But turn to 1 1 John, flip right to 1 John It's almost, it's tucked up against Revelation almost. First John chapter 4. It says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So there are spirits that are from God and there are spirits that are not from God. Newsflash. So there are spirits that are trying to sway you away from God, and there are spirits from God that are trying to sway you to God. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. It's not saying that Jesus, is, Jesus existed. It's saying that He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. Every spirit that says that is of God, and the ones who deny that Jesus Christ is The Messiah, the one who brings salvation, is not from God. And what does he say about that? This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. What a trippy saying. That the spirit of Antichrist, that word Antichrist means against Christ, and also means instead of Christ, is active within the world. It has been. If you check out Isaiah, I can't remember exactly. off the, the part, Isaiah 14, I always get that in Ezekiel mixed up. I think it's Isaiah 14. There's five I wills that Satan will say. I will ascend. I will do this. I will assert. And it's this total self-centered, I will ascend to the top. God is not God. I am God. And that is the spirit behind this. And I will do anything and everything to stop that. And you see it all throughout scripture from Uh, from Satan trying to tempt Eve to uh, Moses being, uh, the, the babies being eradicated, the Hebrew babies being eradicated to the time when Esther had to save a whole nation from extermination, from the Nephilim, from all this other stuff. And I don't even want to get into all that right now. But as you go forward to when Jesus was born, King Herod came and slaughtered all the babies, the spirit that said, not you, You're not going to have your kingdom. I will have my kingdom. I will kill you off. That that spirit of Antichrist against Jesus, usurping him, wanting to put himself in the place of the Lord. It's been at work and it even continues. But one day, this beast, Revelation chapter 13, this man, this person will be possessed by Satan. He will be embodied by Satan. Satan will give him power and influence. And all the things that Satan has, he will be embodied in a person. And when that man is revealed, that kicks off the seven-year period of the Great Tribulation. Of the, of, well, the Tribulation period, the Great Tribulation is the last three and a half years, which we're going to get to in just a second. And so this man is going to come on the world scene. And as you continue reading in Daniel, flip back over to Daniel, This person who embodies and personifies Satan. Now, is Satan this ugly little creature with horns in a pitchfork who lives in hell? No, he's a radiant angel. Radiant, beautiful, powerful, alluring. Prince of the power of the air, he uses the airwaves, he uses... Sight. He uses touch to manipulate people. He uses emotion. He uses all these things to draw people. He is in, setting mankind forever, and his art is all over the place. As you get back to Daniel chapter uh, 9, it says, The anointed one will be put to death, and the people, verse 26, second half. The people of the, ruler, uh, people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed, and he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. For a seven-year period, he's going to have a covenant, a peace treaty, something like that. And in the middle of that seven years, He's going to put an end to sacrifices and offerings, and we're going to talk about this for a second. This is focused on the nation of Israel. What are we trying to do every couple of years? Peace in the Middle East. Is, is it, how's it going? I just laugh every time they get together. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You know, Netanyahu came to the White House and talked about all this type of stuff, and people go, yeah, 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 great, and then they dismiss him, and, and then all this Political-type stuff going on, people fighting each other back and forth and all this. What are they going to do with Jerusalem? they got people who have in their actual charter of their constitution the annihilation of the state of Israel. That's like their mission statement. Kill Jews. Annihilate Israel. That's your mission statement. I mean, if we had it, like a little stencil thing, kill Jews, annihilate Israel. That's what their teaching is. That's the kind of people you're dealing with. How do you get a peace treaty? It's going to take some amazing politician with some incredible power. Let alone, how do you rebuild the temple and put it on the temple mount? You know, there's people right now, the temple mount faithful, who walk around the city every year, who have the cornerstone ready to place in that place longing to put it, but you got the Akhzala Mosque. You know, every time a religious or a political leader goes up to the the Temple Mount there in Israel, which is the big, giant, square foundation that the, <coughs> that the, uh, that the mosque is built upon, that the old temple in Jerusalem used to be built upon, and the holiest of holies was there, and so all the Jews go to the Western Wall because they believe at a certain point There's where the Holy Holies used to be, so they're praying towards it. Does that make sense? How are you going to put a temple there when every time someone goes up there, World War III breaks out? This person is going to be powerful, and he's going to be skilled, and he's going to have signs and wonders, and he's going to have an amazing ability to bring certain nations together. and he's going to create a treaty, and that temple for the first three and a half years will be built. And at the end of that first three and a half years, when that temple is built, Daniel says, he will confirm a covenant with many one seven. In the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifices and offerings. They have all the utensils. They have all the, um, they have the priesthood lined out, these people in Jerusalem. They have they have it all there. They have, I've seen the instruments. They're behind glass casing, you know, in case a Gentile were to look at it too long. It's all there. And they're, they're waiting for this. They have the red heifer. They have all the things that need for sacrifice, but he will put an end of sacrifice in the middle of that seven-year period. Three and a half years in, he's going to put an end to the sacrifice and the offering, and at the, and at the temple, he will stand up an abomination that causes, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed and poured out upon him. In the middle of that three and a half year, year period, things are going to shift. Peace and safety and everybody's economically growing. Everything's great. And then what happens? This guy stands in the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be God. Flip back over to Second Thessalonians. We're doing a lot of Bible drills today. Verse 4. He will pose and he will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple and proclaims himself to be God. Powerful. You know, it's interesting how many... People are looking for the second coming of Christ. The Jews are looking for a second coming of Christ. The Muslims are looking for the, the imam to return. The Christians are looking for the return of Christ. It's interesting. People are so quickly to rally around the cult of personality. I mean, people can be vo- devoid of character and be in political office and people worship them. It happens all the time. It's amazing. And what's going to happen? This person's going to come on, he's going to have power, real power, given by Satan, and people are just going to fall down and go, wow, this is what we've been waiting for. Finally, peace. Finally, equal rights. Finally, Christians are going to be leaving us alone, those stupid, intolerant people. So this person's going to set himself up really quickly. I'm taking you through an adventure here. Flip over to Matthew chapter 24 <clears throat> verse 15. Jesus is speaking to Jews. That 7-year period the church will be gone, I believe. And the nation of Israel will be the focus again. 144,000 will be anointed. There will be a great revival on the earth. There's a lot of things that you can check out in our Revelation study that we did. But Jesus is speaking to Jews here in Matthew chapter 24. It says, so when you see, verse 15, so when you see in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Notice he's saying, let the reader understand what the world? Someone's going to be reading this. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop down or take anything out of their house. Verse 18. Let no one in a field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women or nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on Sabbath. He's speaking to Jews. For then there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. When that guy stands in there, when Satan himself, embodied in a person, just like the Father embodied in Christ, so to speak, the, the false Christ, stands in the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be God, God says, that's it. And the fullness of his wrath kicks off, and you have the, the, the trumpets, and you have the bowls, and you have the scroll, the, the, scroll, the trumpets and the bulls being released upon the earth of Revelation. He goes, pray that you're, it's going to be horrible. In verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Those people who would be saved as the result of the ministry of the 144,000 who were sealed. At the same time, if anyone says to you, look here, here's the Messiah. There he is. Don't believe it for false messiahs and false prophets who appear and perform great signs and wonders uh, wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And see, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is, or out in the, he's out in the wilderness, do not go out. Here he is. He's in the inner rooms. Don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible and even to the west, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man, whatever, wherever there are carcasses, the vultures will gather. Oh, Jesus is laying it out. And so there's this teaching in 2 Thessalonians, that's what the day of the Lord is going to be like. And it goes on. You can read all through Revelation about that. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, again. He's going to do all those things. He's going to set himself. But don't you remember when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? This is Christianity 101. This is Christianity 101. The return of Jesus Christ. The things to come. We should know it. We should have our eyes fixed upon it. It's not fringe Christianity. Oh, the end times people. Blah, blah, blah. No, that's part of our. Oh, the gifts of the Spirit. Ah, oh, like, you know, that's those weirdos. I'm just going to be this really balanced Christian. No, I want all of it. Give me all of it. Jesus, you said it. I want it. If it's taught, put it in my life. Amen? Don't you remember that I was with you? I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. There is a force that is holding him back. What is holding him back? We believe it's the Holy Spirit. That's what I believe. For the secret power of lawlessness, lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, can the Holy Spirit be taken out of the earth? That's impossible. He's God. He's God but who does the Holy Spirit dwell in? The church. What would happen if the salt and the light was removed? Oh, the earth would be an awesome place to do whatever you want. It would be great to send away and have just... It would be horrible to have you removed from Walla Walla. To have you removed from your workplace. To have you removed from your families. To have you, the salt, the light, extinguished and removed. And Satan has a way that he wants to snuff you out and remove that. And one day God will answer that prayer, so to speak, and take us out. And then the judgment will come. Verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow. How does he do it? This big, long, 50 minute you know, battle sequence. You know, high def. What happens? Jesus is going to come down. And he's going to be like, You're done. And that's it. He's going to have all his armies gathered. He's going to be ready you know, to attack and all this stuff. And he's going to be like, and the angels go grab them, throw them into the lake of fire. Just done. With the breath of his mouth, he will destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance of how Satan works. How does Satan work? He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. When you're watching movies, when you're watching these things, I mean, this is something I have to think about. What is the lie? What is being communicated, either by purpose, by the writers, or by, you know, whatever it might be? What is is being communicated? Satan uses all these things through signs and wonders that serve the lie, and all the ways of wickedness, uh, that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Wickedness deceives. People think, oh, it's great to go sleep around. It's great to go do all this stuff, you know, whatever it might be, you know, to smoke pot until your heart's content and just blow your mind or to talk about people behind your back or whatever it is that, you know, we we all get caught up in. It's deceitful. It's death. And in the end, God will judge it. They perish because—why do people perish? Because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. You're judging me. You're so judgmental. No. Man, this is what God says. He says, you got to repent. You got to turn. You got to receive the provision. That's love. And if you reject the love and you desire not to be saved, if you reject God's love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, for people who are total rebellion towards him. Right here, exhibit A. If you reject it, you'll perish. And the world and all its shiny things and all the different intricacies and all the other things will, will try to lure you away. He might do powerful signs. He might be subtle with wickedness. Whatever it is, he knows how to do that. The enemy does but the Lord is powerful. And in ending, it says, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. And for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion that they may believe in the lie. If you're here this morning, if you have rejected Christ and your heart is hard towards him and you've said no to Jesus or whatever it might be and you think you know it and all that great stuff, be careful. Because like Pharaoh, who hardened his heart over and over and over and over again eventually God hardened his heart and he became deluded and was hardened and he when God hardens your heart there's no return so respond to the grace and the love so that they may believe the lie I'm sorry I, but you want yeah I'm sorry, I lost my place here. Verse 12. And so that that all will be condemned who have not believed in the truth but have delighted in wickedness. John 3.36, checked out that verse. But let's just read to the end. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord because God chose you as first fruits. They were the first ones coming to the Lord. God chose them to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the setting apart of the work of the Spirit, and through belief in the truth. And he called you through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, don't be alarmed. Don't be unrooted. Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we pass on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loves us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement, and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and work. Lot there. You can go chew on it on your own time. <clears throat> I know you will. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, the thing he wants to teach that church, live in light of Christ's return. Be thankful that, that, that God's wrath is not coming upon you and so put on the helmet of salvation live like live like it this week live in that freedom live in the light that you've been forgiven live in the light of you're no longer in bondage to sin that God's give you the grace to overcome amen enjoy it be salt and light and when you get hit realize your redeemer's going to come he's going to set things straight live like it be fearless in this culture don't be afraid of them. Reach out to them in love. Don't let them harden your hearts. Don't let them scare you. Don't let them make you go into your corner and retreat. Be salt. Be light. Be like Jesus. Go shine from them in your workplace. When they say all this stuff about you because of your good works, you know, and the things that you do and the way you deal with people is not like the way the world deals, deals with people and you're kind and you're forgiving and yet you're truthful and you tell them about the love of the Lord and you tell them about the, the wrath to come and you tell them about salvation and all these things, be salt, be light because Jesus, will, you'll will stand before your king one day and he will look at you in the eye and he will say, good, well done, good and faithful servant. But you must give an account for what you've done in your body. Jesus says over and over in Revelation, I will repay them for what they have done. And I don't know what that means. I just know that it means he'll repay us for what we've done. And I'm hoping and praying, we're not saved by our works, but I tell you what, our works prove that we're saved. And if you say you're an apple tree and there's no fruit, whatever, and that's what Jesus is looking for, He's looking for warm or cold. So I mean, hot or cold. If you're you're warm, forget it. And so church, this week, no matter where you are in life, no matter how old or young God has put you on this earth with a heartbeat and breath in your body because you have a mission. You are called by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to be salt and light wherever you are. In the hospital bed, on the ball field, at work, at home with the kids, you're it. And so go shine because your father in heaven said to you. And one day he'll call you home. And when he does, it's going to be awesome. Love you guys. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up this teaching to you. We pray that we would be worthy of the salvation, Lord, that you have given us. As Paul prayed there, that we would walk worthy of, of the calling you've given us, that we would not walk in darkness because we're not children of darkness, that we would walk in the light, that you, by your Spirit, would cleanse us from all darkness and keep our path straight. And where we need grace today, Lord, we pray that we would call out to you and you'd cleanse us. And thank you for your love. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that Jesus, your name, means Jehovah is salvation. You are our salvation. You save us. From the wrath. Thank you that you took it upon yourself. We pray that this would not be just for us, that we wouldn't be greedy, but that we would extend this invitation to others. We would give the gospel that brings hope to mankind, wherever we are, through our words, through our deeds, through our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.